Hi, I'm John Visklosky, and this is Not So True Crime. In every episode, I share with you a new piece of original short fiction. On today's show, we're going to be reading a story called First Semester. It's a story about a young girl living with the threat of abuse. As she prepares to leave home to attend her first year of college, she's forced to decide how far she's willing to go to keep her family safe. And now, without further delay, First Semester, written and read by John Visklosky. A week before she left for college, Dana Bradley bought a gun. She waited until Brad left for work, peeling away in his souped-up truck that was too big to fit in their garage and had to be parked out in the drive, music blaring from the open windows like always. Then she walked out from the house and climbed into her tiny sedan. She guided the small, rusted Honda with the scratched-up bumper and its lone plastic hubcap out of the small, wooded neighborhood merging onto the busy interstate. She followed the highway for 20 miles, driving with the windows rolled down, crossing over into the next county. She pulled off at the first exit, parking outside of a small pawn shop that stood at one end of a gravel parking lot, across from an abandoned gas station, the awning over the pumps half collapsed, lights dangling from their wires. Climbing out of her dinged-up car, she pulled open the door of the shop, hearing a soft, electronic chime. The man, sitting behind the counter, his face thin and mottled with splotches, looked up at the sound of the chime. Morning, he called, speaking with the slightest hint of a drawl as he gave her a friendly nod. Dana nodded back. She moved through the cluttered shop, clutching tight to the handle of her purse, past the glass display cases full of laptops, cameras, and watches. Help you find something? The man said. Dana paused. I need a gun. The man gave another nod. Well, we've got plenty of those. He gestured to a long gun rack, enclosed behind sliding panes of glass. The rack was full of hunting rifles and shotguns, the kind for shooting turkeys and ducks. I'm assuming you want something for hunting, he said. Dana shook her head. Actually, I was looking for something smaller. The man didn't frown or look surprised. He just stood there and nodded. We've got those too. He led her around to the end of the counter, to a display case that held nothing but handguns, each with a small paper price tag tied around the end of the barrel. You looking for anything in particular? he asked. Just something that's small and easy to aim, said Dana. Nothing too heavy, and nothing with too much of a kick. The man nodded and took out his keys, unlocking the back of the case. He reached in and took out one of the handguns, laying it flat upon the counter. I'm not really an expert, he said. Guns are really more Tom's thing, and he's not in today. But you probably want something like this. Dana, picked it up, feeling its weight. That's one of the lighter ones we sell. How's the weight feel? He asked. Honestly, it seemed too heavy to her, but she decided to buy it anyway. Do you have any bullets for it? She asked. Well, 
the clip there fits 13 rounds, but this one only came with six. But you can probably buy more at the Outfitters over in Keysville if you want. That's all right, said Dana. Six should be fine. She was afraid he would ask her to fill out a form or submit to some kind of waiting period. But he just put the gun in a plastic case and charged her $200. One eighty for the gun, 20 for the plastic case. She paid with crumpled tens and twenties, then walked back out to her car, the case tucked under her arm, her stomach a tight, painful knot. The case was locked with one of those small silver padlocks, the same kind she'd had in her diary when she'd been younger. As soon as she got back home, she went straight up to her room and locked the door. She had to watch a video on YouTube to figure out how to load the gun. She practiced it a few times, ejecting the thin metal clip and slapping it back into place until she finally had it down and could do it in one motion without thinking. She was playing music on her computer and had turned the volume all the way up so her little brother wouldn't hear her jamming the clip in and out. Not that she needed to worry. She could hear him down the hall playing video games in his bedroom. As soon as she'd finished practicing how to load and unload the gun, she put it up on the top shelf of her closet, behind a pile of old clothes. Then she lay down on her bed, listening to music on her headphones, thinking about the slim plastic case that had cost her half a summer's worth of babysitting. Two nights later, she was in her room, surrounded by piles of clothes and books, trying to figure out what she should bring with her to school, when she heard his truck come squealing up to the curb, country music blaring loudly from the open windows. She could hear him staggering up the walk, his boots heavy upon the asphalt. Brad wasn't a tall man, but he was heavy, and he could make a lot of noise when he wanted. She heard the front door slam shut, and moments later, her mother, shouting. Dana turned up the volume on her music and tried to ignore the sounds of fighting, which had become almost a nightly ritual over these last six months. It wasn't until she heard the meaty thump of a fist striking bare flesh that she went into her closet and got down the plastic case. She was halfway to the top of the steps, the gun heavy in her right hand, when her brother came out from his room. The boy was practically in tears, jumping nervously from foot to foot. Michael was almost 13, but in that moment, he could have been eight. What's going on? He said. It's nothing, Dana said. Go back in your room. Maybe we should call the cops. Just go back into your room and lock the door. His eyes fell onto the gun, seeing it for the first time. Holy fuck, is that a gun? Where did you get a gun? Dana frowned. Just shut your door and keep it locked. Don't come out until I come and get you, okay? Michael nodded and shut the door. Dana didn't start down the steps until she heard it latch, heard the bolt slide into place with a soft metallic clack. By the time she reached the door to the kitchen, her mother was on the floor, leaning against a cupboard. Blood dribbled from her broken lips dripping onto the front of her shirt. Brad was standing over her, his words heavy and slurred. He was bringing back his fist, getting ready to hit her again, 
when Dana came rushing in, pointing the gun at his chest. Stop! Right now! She shouted. She could feel her heart pounding, her throat dry and tight, almost like the way it felt right before she threw up. She glanced at her hands and noticed they were shaking, either from the weight of the gun or because she was frightened. Not that he might hurt her, but that she might actually be forced to shoot him if he turned around and came rushing at her. Brad turned, saw the gun, took a heavy step back. Just calm down, he said, his eyes never leaving the weapon. Don't do anything dumb. Shut up, screamed Dana. Just shut up and get the fuck out of our house. Okay, said Brad. Okay, I'm going. He backed his way out of the kitchen, down the hall to the front of the house. Dana followed him all the way to the door, keeping at least ten feet between them. As soon as he was out of the house and had pulled the heavy door shut, she ran up and locked the bolt, feeling it slam home. She crouched down on the rug, looking out through the narrow mail slot, until she saw him climb into his truck and go peeling off the bright red glare of his taillights fading as he turned a corner. Only then did she go upstairs and put the gun back in its case. She helped her mother up the steps and into the bath, scrubbing her face softly with a washcloth that came away pink and clotted with blood. I'm so sorry, her mother said as Dana dipped the washcloth into the water, wringing it out. If I knew he was going to do something like that. She trailed off. Dana said nothing. Dana, her mother said. That gun, where'd you get it? I bought it at a pawn shop, said Dana. For a moment, she thought her mother might cry, maybe even ask her to hand it over. But she didn't. She just touched Dana's arm, giving it a firm squeeze. Thank you, she said. Dana nodded. She helped her mother out of the tub and stood in the hall as she toweled off, pulling out an old t-shirt and a pair of pajama bottoms from the dresser in her mother's closet. Her mother winced as she pulled on the shirt, her shoulders red and starting to bruise. Dana helped her climb into bed, then went back downstairs. She stayed up all night, watching TV and sitting on the couch, listening for any sound of a truck. The next morning, she called a locksmith as soon as they opened at ten. Two hours later, a white-paneled van pulled up in front of the house. A man in a blue work shirt climbed out, wearing a heavy tool belt. Within hours, he had changed every lock in the house, handing Dana a fresh set of keys. She took them to the hardware store where she had one of the clerks make her two copies. She gave one set to Michael. The other went to her mother, with the promise that she wouldn't give Brad a copy. Her mother, crying, swore it softly. Dana handed her the keys. Sometimes Dana thought about the night her father had died. She had been only 12, nearly the age that Michael was now. He had died suddenly at 41, the victim of a coronary embolism. One moment he'd been sitting on the couch, 
sipping a beer and watching football. The next, he'd slumped onto the floor, beer spilling all over the rug. Dana was the one who'd found him, sprawled out upon his stomach, eyes wide, mouth open. She'd let out a terrified scream that had brought her mother running. Dana had stood out in the hall, clinging stiffly to her mother's arm as the EMTs loaded him onto a gurney and lifted him into the back of the ambulance. Some of the neighbors had come out to watch, standing out in their front yards, faces red in the glow of the lights. By the time they pulled up to the ER, he had been dead for almost an hour. A little less than three years later, her mother had started dating Brad. She'd met him on one of those dating apps for people who were over 40. Singles mingle or mix and match, something silly like that. From the start, Dana had hated him. She knew she probably would have hated any man her mother dated, but her feelings for Brad went beyond the petty resentment of a child still grieving the loss of a parent. It wasn't simply that she disliked him. Dana was frightened of him. It wasn't just the way he spoke to her mom, dismissive and condescending, or how he always seemed so resentful of her and Michael's presence. It was the way he came tearing up to the house, music blaring from the speakers in his truck. The way he called her D instead of just using her full name like everyone else. Most of all, it was the way he looked at her, especially when he thought she wasn't paying attention. Several times she had caught him staring down her shirt when she bent over to pick something up. It made her feel so repulsed, so sickened and utterly embarrassed that she started wearing loose jeans and baggy sweaters, even in the dead of summer when the heat was smothering. Then, one time when she was fifteen, She'd woken in the middle of the night and found him standing at the foot of her bed, stinking of stale beer and sweat. She'd shut her eyes and lay still, pretending to still be asleep. And after a few paralyzing minutes, he'd stumbled back into the hall, not even bothering to shut the door. After that, she refused to go to sleep without locking her door first. She thought about going to her mom and telling her, but Dana never did. She was too afraid of what Brad might do to her if she did. Besides, Brad would probably deny it, and her mom might not even believe her. Eight months after they'd started dating, the lease on Brad's apartment ran out, and he moved into their house. They had married six months later in a small civil ceremony, with Dana and Michael as the only guests, save for the judge and his clerk who presided. Brad didn't like her mom's friends and hadn't wanted any of them there. He claimed they were all stuck-up snobs whose only reason for not warming to him was that he'd never finished college. From the start, the marriage had been hard. Brad would often stay out late, drinking with his buddies from the garage, stumbling in at one in the morning, boots heavy on the tiled floor, his clothes reeking of cigarette smoke and stale, natty bows. Within weeks, the two of them were fighting nearly every night, getting in long, screaming matches that sometimes brought the cops. Then, one day when they were out to the movies on one of their rare family outings, 
Her mother had asked for butter on her popcorn, and Brad gave a mean little snort. He asked if she was sure about the butter, given all the pounds she'd been putting on. The teenager, standing behind the counter, looked down at his hands, embarrassed, then shuffled off to collect their snacks. Her mother had looked straight at Brad and said that her husband, by which Dana knew she meant her dad, would never have said something so mean, especially not in front of her children, and that if Brad was half the man he'd been, he wouldn't have said it either. For a long moment, Brad was silent. He just stood there, in front of the cash register, pale cheeks flushing with anger. Dana thought he might start screaming, everyone in line trying not to stare, until someone who worked at the theater came by and asked them to leave. But he didn't. He just stood there, stewing, chewing on the inside of his cheek, the way he did when something had really gotten to him. He waited until they were in their seats, and the lights in the theater had started to dim. Then he turned to her mother and whispered softly, Speak to me like that again, and I'll fucking kill you. That was when Dana decided that she should probably buy a gun. All that next week, after she had changed the locks, Dana waited for Brad to come back to the house. He never did. Either he'd have found a friend to stay with, or he'd gotten a room in a motel. On the morning she left for school, Michael helped her pack up her car, carrying her bags out through the garage and dumping them in her tiny trunk. She'd hidden the slender black case in the bottom of her rolling suitcase, beneath a pile of old shirts. She considered leaving it with her mom, in case Brad came back to the house. But after a few moments of thought, Dana had decided against it. Ever since her father had died, her mother had turned frail and flighty, twitching at the slightest noise, her face pale and lined with worry. Dana didn't trust her to use the gun properly, knew that she was just as likely to shoot Michael as she was Brad. So Dana brought the case with her, not knowing what else to do with it. Her mother came out to say goodbye, giving her a big, long hug. You should call a lawyer, Dana said. Someone who can help you get a divorce. Her mother nodded. Tara at work said she knows a lawyer from when her sister got divorced. You should call him, Dana said. She turned and climbed into her car, then backed out of the long drive, rolling her window down and waving goodbye. Her mother stood out in the lawn, wiping tears from the corners of her eyes. Michael chased after her car, all the way to the end of the block, until she sped up leaving him far behind. She'd always thought that she would cry, leaving home for the first time. She thought she might feel guilty or ashamed for leaving her mom and Michael behind. But the only thing she felt as she pulled away in her dented car was a deep swelling of relief, along with a sense of lightness, as if she was finally rid of some weight, something she hadn't even known she'd been carrying something she could only feel now that it was finally gone. Turning up the curving ramp and onto the sloping highway, she slipped on a pair of sunglasses and rolled down all her windows, letting the wind whip at her hair, twisting it into knots and snags, gripping the wheel tightly with her hands, so tight she felt her knuckles pop, 
she turned up the volume on the radio and let out a long, joyous shout, feeling good and careless and free, freer than she'd felt in years. A week after she got to school, her mother called Dana in tears. Brad had come by the house, roaring up the drive in his truck. Probably the only reason he'd come was because he knew that Dana would be gone. He'd tried to get in using his old keys, then gotten pissed when they didn't work. When her mother refused to open up, he'd gone all around the house, banging on every window he could reach, yelling for her to let him in. Her mom had shouted to him from a bedroom window, begging him to go away, but he screamed at her for changing the locks, threatening to set fire to the house if she didn't let him in. After a while, a neighbor had come out to see what was going on, and that seemed to scare him off. He'd climbed back into his truck, calling her a bitch and a slut. You should call the cops, said Dana, feeling that familiar tightening in her stomach. Tell them what happened. Tell them what he said. I don't know, her mother said, her voice sounding tired and skittish. He's gone now. There's nothing they can do. Yeah, but maybe they can charge him with trespassing or something, said Dana. Or maybe they can warn him to stay away from the house. Maybe, her mother said, sounding nervous and unsure. Dana let out a long breath. Do you want me to drive back up for the night? Stay there with you in case he comes back? No, 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 of course not, her mother said. I just wanted to let you know what happened. Okay, Dana said. If he comes by the house again, promise me you'll call the cops. Don't wait for him to do something. Just call them as soon as you see his truck. Okay? Okay, her mother said. I will, I promise. Although I might not need to. Mom, Dana started, feeling frustrated. I just mean, maybe he's given up. Maybe he won't come back to the house. Maybe, said Dana, even though she didn't believe it. For the next month, things were quiet, and Dana was able to focus on her classes. Then, one night in October, her mother called again, sobbing. It was dark when she called, a few minutes past ten o'clock. Dana was alone in her dorm her roommate having left to spend the night at her boyfriend's, a senior who lived in a group house near campus, along with four other students. Dana was sitting cross-legged at her desk, wearing an old t-shirt and sweatpants, her dark hair heavy and wet from the shower she had just taken. The moment she picked up the phone and heard the strained sound of her mother's voice, she felt her blood go cold, her stomach tightening to a painful knot. Mom? What is it? What's wrong? She said. Her mother gave a small gasp. Dana, she said, her voice choked and breathless. Jesus, fuck. I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what the fuck to do. Mom, calm down, Dana said. What is it? What happened? Did Brad come by the house again? Her mother took a long, shuddering breath. No, it's not Brad, she said. Then what is it? Dana asked. What's going on? Somebody called me on my cell. I, I was sitting at home, on the couch, watching TV, and somebody called me on my cell. Who was it? asked Dana. I don't know, her mother said. He wouldn't give me his name. What did he say? 
asked Dana. But her mother wasn't listening. She just kept babbling into the phone, her words tumbling over each other. I don't know why I even picked up, but when I saw that it was a 240 number, I thought it might be somebody from work, or maybe someone from Michael's school, so I just hit accept without thinking. Mom, Dana snapped, trying to get her attention. Tell me what happened. What did this guy say? Her mother took a sharp breath, her voice hitching in her throat. He said that he was watching the house, that somebody had contacted him, and that he had been hired to kill us. Dana stood up. She could feel the blood rushing in her ears, the contents of her stomach bubbling. He said that he was a professional, and that he had been hired to fulfill a contract, and that he was going to do it unless I could make him a better offer. It was probably just Brad, Dana said, or one of his stupid friends. They were probably just trying to scare you. But he knew, her mother said. He knew what show I was watching. He, he even knew what video game Michael was playing in his bedroom. Dana swallowed, her throat tightening. She could picture it all in her head. Brad and one of his scruffy friends, sitting outside in the cab of a pickup, peering through the pair of hunting binoculars that he used to stalk deer, looking in through the open windows, watching her mother and Michael. He even knew the name of your dorm at school her mother said. He said he knew your entire class schedule. Dana felt her face grow warm. Even though her room was on the fifth floor, she rushed over to the window and yanked the blinds shut. Mom, you have to call the police. Call them and tell them what this guy said. You have his phone number. Give it to them. Maybe they can trace it or something. No, I can't, her mother said. He said that if I called the police and he saw a cruiser pull up to the house, he'd drive straight to your dorm and shoot you. The rush of blood in Dana's ears had risen to an almost deafening roar. What are we supposed to do? asked Dana. I don't know, her mother said, her voice dropping to a sudden whisper. Mom, do you want me to come there? she said. Do you want me to drive back to the house? I don't know, her mother said again. Dana could hear the helplessness in her voice, the unmistakable note of surrender, as if she'd already given up. Okay, Dana shuddered. I'm going to drive back home, tonight. I'll get there as soon as I can. Okay? Okay, her mother said. Dana hung up. She pulled on a pair of jeans and a light blue jacket. Kneeling in front of her dresser, she pulled out the bottom drawer digging through the pile of clothes until she found the handle of the case. Tucking it under her arm, she took the elevator down to the first floor, walking across the street to the garage where she kept her dented Honda parked. She glanced through the windows of the car before getting in, just to make sure there was no one in the back waiting to grab her. It was silly, she knew. Silly and paranoid. But that was how she was feeling. She climbed in behind the wheel. Dana knew it was unlikely that the man who'd called her mom on the phone was actually a professional killer. Even if such people were real, and she wasn't sure that they were, she doubted whether Brad had the brains to find one, let alone the money to hire him. The man barely knew how to use Craigslist. How was he supposed to contact a hitman? In all likelihood, it was just Brad and one of his shithead friends, parked a few doors down from the house, sitting together in the dark, 
giggling to themselves over how much they'd scared her mom. Probably that was all it was, but how could she be sure? The drive from campus to her mother's house normally took about an hour. Dana made it in 40, flat, pushing the little car as fast as it would go. It was late at night on a Tuesday, and the highway was mostly empty. Dana sped, pressing the pedal all the way down to the mat, praying that some cop or highway patrolman would see her going 30 over the limit and pull her over. Then she could tell the cop who stopped her about the man who had called her mother. But she never heard the blare of sirens or saw the glare of flashing lights. It was almost midnight by the time she pulled into the sprawling, wooded neighborhood, all the houses quiet and dark, moths fluttering around the porch lights. She parked two streets over, lurching to a stop and killing her headlights. Opening the slender case, she pulled out the gun, slipping it into the pocket of her jacket, zipping it shut. She glanced down at her phone, which was jammed into one of the plastic cup holders. There were three missed calls from her mom, all within 30 seconds of each other. She'd forgotten to switch her phone off silent, which was how she kept it most of the time, in case someone happened to call while she was sitting in a crowded classroom. Scrolling through the log of missed calls, she dialed her mother's number. The phone rang once and switched over to voicemail. Either her mom was on a call, or her phone had been switched off. Creeping between two houses, her heart hammering beneath her shirt, she made her way into the backyard, slipping through the grass, still damp from a recent rain. She moved silently from yard to yard, past low hedgerows and fences, until she reached the back of her mother's house. Crouching behind a low tangle of shrubs, she looked up at the rear of the house, scanning the windows and doors for any signs of movement. Light spilled out from the glass, casting a dim glow onto the grass. She stayed there for more than a minute, fingering the handle of the gun in her pocket, until the knees of her pants were damp from kneeling too long in the mud. Still, she saw nothing, no signs of movement anywhere in the sprawling house. She hurried across the grass, moving in a low crouch until she reached the back door. Turning her key in the lock, she slid open the door and slipped inside. The kitchen was empty and still, her mother's small instant kettle still steaming on the counter next to the sink. Dana craned her head and listened, trying to hear any sound other than her own labored breathing. As far as she could tell, the house was completely quiet. She couldn't even hear the muffled cries and booms that meant her younger brother was playing a video game upstairs in his bedroom. Creeping out into the hall, stepping as close as she could to the wall so the floorboards wouldn't creak as loudly, she made a slow circle of the first floor. Both the dining room and living rooms were empty, but one of the chairs next to the table had been overturned. It was resting on its side at the edge of the patterned rug. Seeing it lying there on the floor, Dana felt her legs start to weaken. She made her way slowly to the top of the stairs, 
her steps muffled by the thick red runner that spilled down the center of the steps. She checked Michael's room first, peering in the closet and beneath his bed, finding no one. Same for her own room, which was just as deserted. She came last to her mother's bedroom, which stood at the very end of the hall. Unlike the other two, the door to her mother's room was shut. Dana grabbed the knob, twisting slowly to make sure it wasn't locked. She pulled the gun out of her pocket, the barrel pointed down at the floor. For the space of three long seconds, she stood at the end of the hall, braced against the flimsy door, willing herself to open it and go in. Twisting the knob, she pushed the door open, bursting into the tiny bedroom. She stood just inside the door, gun held up, looking around. The sheets on the bed were rumpled and unmade, curtains ruffling next to an end table where one of the windows had been opened to crack. But save for the queen-sized bed and her mother's plush reading chair, the room and its attached bathroom were both completely empty. For a moment, Dana stood next to the bed, still holding the heavy gun, not sure what to do next, her shirt clinging to the sweat on her back. She was still standing in the empty room, wondering whether she should call the police, when she heard the front door open, followed by the sound of footsteps. Dana darted back out into the hall, stopping at the top of the stairs. Who's there? she shouted, holding the gun with both hands. At the sound of her voice, the footsteps stopped, pausing somewhere near the back of the house. Who the fuck is there? she shouted again her voice louder. Whoever it is, you better get the fuck out of here. I've got a gun and I just called the cops. Dana? said a soft voice. Is that you? Dana stopped short, breath catching in her throat. Mom? Dana, it's me. Her mother appeared at the foot of the steps, looking up with a frightened expression. Seeing her, Dana slid the gun into her pocket then slumped sideways into the wall, her legs almost giving out. Jesus, Mom, Dana said, her hands still shaking tremulously. I thought you were... Her voice trailed off. Why didn't you pick up when I called? Why weren't you here? I took your brother down the block to spend the night at Mason's house. You know his friend from school? Dana nodded. She knew who Mason was. I didn't want him to be here in case someone tried to break in. I didn't think you'd be here so soon. I thought it'd take you longer to get here. Did you really call the cops? No, said Dana. I just said it to scare off whoever it is I thought you were. Pushing off from the wall, Dana started down the steps. Her legs were still shaking and tense from the sudden flush of adrenaline. They spent that night together on the couch, watching old movies from the 90s, sipping their way through a pot of coffee, the curtains on all the windows drawn, listening for any sign of an intruder, the tinkle of breaking glass, the rattle of a locked doorknob, the crunch of a splintering doorframe. Dana kept her phone on her lap, the number for the local sheriff's department already dialed and ready, in case someone tried to get in the house and she had to make the call quickly. She put the gun on the table next to the couch, 
next to her mug of stale coffee. She left around eight the next morning, her eyes sore and bleary. Standing out on the front porch, she gave her mom a quick hug goodbye, telling her to call the cops the next time anyone called, no matter what kind of threats he made. Before driving back to the highway, she did a quick lap around the block, looking for any unfamiliar vehicles and seeing nothing out of place. The subdivision looked as it always had, quiet and serene, not exactly the kind of place you'd expect to find a professional hitman crouched behind the wheel of his car, staring at one of the sprawling houses. Dana drove back to campus in silence, her car's engine whining softly. Two days later, she was sitting in class, listening to one of her professors give a long, droning lecture, when Dana burst suddenly into tears, the sound of her loud, breathless crying filling the large classroom. The other students turned and stared, but Dana couldn't stop crying. Calling an early end to the class, the professor took her by the hand, leading her down the hall to his office, which was cramped and filled with papers. He disappeared into the hall, bringing back a plastic cup filled with water from the sink in the bathroom. He waited for ten minutes until Dana had finally stopped crying, then asked her earnestly what had happened. Why had she suddenly started sobbing in the middle of his morning lecture? Dana told him everything, starting with the night that Brad had hit her mom and Dana had scared him out of the house and ending with her standing in the hall shouting down the steps to her mom. The one detail she left out was any mention of the gun she'd bought, knowing that it would only raise a flurry of uncomfortable questions that she didn't feel up to answering. Instead, she lied and said she'd use a knife to scare Brad out of the house. She'd grabbed the large chef's knife from the butcher's block on the kitchen counter, shouting and waving it at him until he'd left. When she finished, the professor sat, arms folded on top of his desk. We're calling the police, he said, after a long moment of silence. You're going to tell them exactly what you just told me. I can stay here and be with you while you talk to them if you'd like, but I want you to tell them everything, okay? Dana nodded stiffly. For once it felt good to not have to decide something. The professor picked up his cell and dialed 911. An hour later, a detective arrived, wearing a light-colored blouse beneath a loosely-fitting suit. I'm Detective Hayward, she said, giving Dana's hand a firm shake. I heard you've been having some problems with your stepdad. Why don't you tell me what's been going on? Again, Dana laid it all out, the detective sitting across from her, taking notes, asking the occasional question in a soft, reassuring voice. Dana recounted the entire story, the same one she told her professor, leaving out any mention of the gun, which she was almost certain she had purchased illegally. When she'd finished listening to Dana's statement, the detective leaned forward in her chair, fixing Dana with a sharp, penetrating stare. Okay, said Hayward, here's what I think we should do. I'm going to call your mom convince her to take out a restraining order on your stepdad. That way, the next time he comes by the house or goes anywhere near you or your brother, you can call us and we can arrest him. Sound good? Yeah, 
said Dana. Hayward nodded. Now, I don't think, based on what you've told me, that the man who called your mom was actually a professional hitman. She almost laughed. Even so, it won't hurt any to take a few precautions. I'm going to talk to campus security. Have them put somebody in the lobby of your dorm. They're also going to follow you to and from class, at least for the next couple of weeks. Does that sound okay to you? Dana nodded. Good, said Hayward. I'm also going to ask them to have somebody accompany your roommate. She might not like it very much, but whoever called your mom knows where you live, so we need to protect her, too. I'll also speak to campus housing. Get them to move you both into a different building. All right, said Dana, feeling reassured. The detective was speaking quickly and confidently, as if she'd said it all before. Hayward reached into her pocket and pulled out a business card, bent at one corner. Here, she said, handing it over. That's my card. That's got my office and cell numbers on it. If you think somebody is watching you or anything else happens with your stepdad, I want you to call me immediately. I don't care what time it is. I keep my phone on 24-7 and I sleep with it right next to my head. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I'll pick up. I promise. Okay, said Dana, her voice still small and wavering. Hayward leaned forward, giving her hand a reassuring squeeze. It's going to be okay. I'm going to stop by your stepdad's place, have a little chat with him. I know guys like that. He's not going to do anything once he knows the police are looking into it. Dana nodded, thinking to herself that this detective was probably right, and that Brad would give up bothering them once he knew the cops were involved. Three weeks after they met, Dana got a call from Detective Hayward. She was out to lunch with a few friends, killing time between classes. Hayward was calling from the waiting room of the hospital, where Dana's mother had just been admitted. Dana listened in silence while Hayward told her what had happened. Brad had attacked her mom that morning while she was on her way into work. Apparently, he'd been waiting for her in the parking lot outside her office. As soon as she'd gotten out of her car, he'd come running up and started shouting, saying that the cops had been by his house. She'd tried to calm him down, but Brad just kept shouting, calling her a bitch and a slut for taking out a restraining order on him. Her mother had tried to push past him to reach the lobby of her building where the guards at the security desk might be able to protect her. But he'd pushed her down onto the pavement and started kicking her in the ribs. It was only after he'd grabbed her by the hair and slammed her head onto the concrete that one of the guards came running out, holding a plastic stun gun and shouting. That was when Brad got spooked and ran off, climbing into the cab of his truck. We sent a couple of officers to detain him. They arrested him a few hours ago, said Hayward. We charged him with aggravated assault and violating his restraining order. There's a bail hearing scheduled for tomorrow morning, so we'll see what the judge decides to set bail. So does that mean there's a chance he might get out of jail? Dana asked. Yes, but only if he can post bail, Hayward said. You ask me, that's not very likely. Given the charges, the history of abuse, and the presence of a restraining order against him, the judge is probably going to set bail at somewhere between thirty dollars and $50,000, twenty-five at the very lowest. Given your stepdad's line of employment and his lack of fungible assets, but that just means something that can be exchanged for money, something like a car or a house, she explained. 
I know what it means, said Dana. Right. Sorry. Of course you do, said Hayward. The point is, I don't think he'll have enough to cover bail. Unless your stepdad can put up enough cash or find someone willing to put it up for him, he's going to have to remain in jail until his case goes to trial. And when will that be? asked Dana, speaking softly so her friends wouldn't hear. Probably in a few months, said Hayward. Five days after they spoke, Hayward called Dana again. This time, she was in bed, reading a book for her Islamic studies class. Brad Heckman posted bail. What? Dana said, sitting up in bed. It just posted a few hours ago, Hayward said. He's going to be released in the morning. I thought you said he wasn't going to be able to pay it. That's what I thought, said Hayward. Apparently he's got a buddy. Works as a part-time bail bondsman. He agreed to put up the money so Brad could get out on bond. Jesus, breathed Dana, pacing around the tiny room. Don't worry, said Hayward. I contacted the sheriff's office in Carroll County. They've got a man sitting in a car outside your mom's house now. He's going to keep an eye on things so Brad can't try anything. What about when he's gone, said Dana. What if he waits and comes back in a few weeks after you guys stop watching the house? Hayward let out a long breath. Trust me, we're doing everything we can to make sure that doesn't happen. But despite all the detective's assurances, her promises that nothing bad would happen, Dana's mom called two days later, sobbing with worry and fear. She'd been contacted again by the same man who had already threatened to kill them. He said that the contract was still open and that he would be coming soon to collect. The threat was reported to Hayward, but since the call had come from an unlisted number, they couldn't prove it had been Brad or even one of his friends. Even though Hayward thought it was nothing, probably just Brad trying to scare you, she asked the local sheriff's department to continue to keep a car on the house. She also asked campus housing to move Dana and her roommate again. By now, Dana could tell that her roommate who had been randomly assigned to her at the beginning of the year, was fed up with the constant moving, as well as the burly officer from campus security who followed her around wherever she went. She spent most nights at her boyfriend's, leaving Dana alone in their room, another officer from campus security sitting all night in the lobby of the building. Dana hardly ever left. No matter where she went, she felt vulnerable, exposed, Fearful in a way she'd never felt, not even during those two years when Brad had lived with them. Hayward promised it was the last time that campus housing would have to move them, but by this point, not even Dana believed her. Two weeks later, Hayward called again. Dana was out with a few friends from her Islamic studies class. They'd all decided to catch a documentary about female activists in the Middle East that their professor had told them would count for extra credit as long as they showed him the stubs from their tickets. They were in line waiting to get popcorn and chatting when Dana's phone started ringing. Turning away from the rest of the group, she walked over to a quiet corner of the lobby and answered. Hey, said Hayward, sounding tired. This a bad time? Kind of, said Dana. I was just about to watch a movie. 
This won't take long, promised Hayward. I just wanted to ask you something. Okay, said Dana, annoyed. What? You remember where you were last Wednesday night? Asked Hayward. It would have been the 12th. I don't know, said Dana. I guess I was home, in my dorm. You remember what time you got there? I don't know. I went home right after my last class, so probably sometime around four. And you were there the whole night? Yep, said Dana. Was anyone else there with you? Asked Hayward. Any classmates? Boyfriend, maybe? I don't have a boyfriend, said Dana. Hayward let out a breath. Something between a grunt and a laugh. And what about a boy who's just a friend, then? I have a few of those, said Dana. Just not in your room, said Hayward. No. What about your roommate, Addison? Asked Hayward. Was she there with you that night? No, said Dana. She was at her boyfriend's that night. She's at her boyfriend's every night. So when did you leave your dorm, if you were there all night? Dana shrugged. The next morning, when I went to the dining hall to get some breakfast, I guess? Around what time was that? I don't know. Nine, maybe? Ten? Hayward paused, breathing into the phone. You wouldn't happen to own or have access to a handgun, would you? No, said Dana. You sure? asked Hayward. I think I'd remember, said Dana. The thing is, said Hayward, when I spoke to your mom and asked her, she seemed to think that you did. She even said you used it once to scare your stepdad out of the house. That true? No, said Dana. I don't know why she would say that. She's been through a lot the last few months. Maybe she was just confused. She didn't sound confused, said Hayward. You don't know her like I do, said Dana. She doesn't always have the best memory, especially when she's frightened. If you say so, said Hayward. Dana frowned. Why are you asking me these questions, detective? Did something happen? Again, Hayward paused, as if she were weighing what to say next. Brad Heckman was killed last Wednesday. Dana said nothing. After a long moment of silence, Hayward went on. Somebody got him coming out of a bar, sometime around one in the morning. Shot him six times in the chest at close range with a small caliber handgun. One of the other patrons found him lying next to his truck. He'd already been dead for about half an hour by the time anyone saw him. Nobody got a look at the guy who did it, and the bar where he was drinking doesn't have any security cameras. Hayward stopped talking, waiting for her to say something. But Dana just kept her mouth shut. After a moment, the detective sighed. You got any kind of reaction to the news that your stepdad was just shot dead? Sure, said Dana. I'm happy to hear it. Again, Hayward made that sound, something between a laugh and a grunt. You don't sound too happy about it. You ask me, you don't sound surprised either. Maybe because I'm not, said Dana. Brad Heckman was a piece of shit. There are probably a lot of people who wanted to shoot him. Yeah, Hayward admitted. But I'm not talking to any of them. I'm just talking to you. Why? asked Dana. You think I did it? I just want to know where you were when it happened. And whether or not I own a gun. That too. Why don't you just ask the officer from campus security who was sitting in the lobby of my building, said Dana. I already did, said Hayward. 
He said that you got back to your dorm around five and that he didn't see you leave all night. Then why did you even call me? Asked Dana. Well, there's more than one entrance to that building, said Hayward. You can always go out through the door in the back or one of the stairwells at either end. If someone was really determined to get out of there without being seen by the rent-a-cop downstairs, it probably wouldn't be too hard. Maybe, said Dana. But even if I did leave, I'd have to swipe my keycard to get back in, no matter which door I used. I'm sure the school must keep records of that sort of thing. Actually, they do, said Hayward. And according to your building's keycard logs, your card wasn't used to get in or out of that building between 5.07 on Wednesday night and 9.48 the next morning. That's because I was in my room, like I told you, said Dana. Maybe, said Hayward, but that's not what I said. I just said that your keycard wasn't used, not that you were actually in the building. What's that supposed to mean, said Dana. Did you know that the windows in the laundry room of your dorm don't have any bars on them, said Hayward. That room's also on the ground floor, and there also aren't any security cameras in the hall leading in or out. Someone could just leave the window open and climb in and out without ever using their keycard. Dana was silent. Thing is, the detective continued, it's always hard to prove a case like this without the murder weapon, and we have no idea where to find the gun that killed your stepdad. Stop calling him that, said Dana. I'm sorry, said Hayward. He wasn't my stepdad, Dana said. He was just my mom's husband. Fair enough, said Hayward. Anyway, like I was saying, we don't have the gun that killed him. Any idea where we might find it? I guess it would be with the person who shot him, said Dana, her voice calm, cold. Hayward snorted. I guess so. For a moment, neither of them said a word. You're a smart girl, Dana, Hayward said. I'm willing to bet that even if you did buy a gun somewhere along the line, there's not going to be any record of it. You probably got it from some guy selling them out of the trunk of his car. I'm also willing to bet that even if you did use it, it's probably not the kind of thing you just leave lying around, hidden in the back of your underwear drawer. I guess you can always get a warrant to search my dorm and find out, said Dana. Hayward laughed. Based on what evidence, she said. The fact that the security officer didn't see you leave your room all night? Or the fact that your key card wasn't used? There isn't a judge alive who'd grant that request, and I think you know that. Then why are you calling me? asked Dana. If you can't get a warrant to search my room and you don't have the gun that killed him. What? Did you just call me up, hoping I'd get nervous and confess to something? No said Hayward. Like I said, you're a smart girl. You wouldn't do something like that. I guess I was probably just curious. Curious about what? asked Dana. Curious to see how you'd react. And how did I? said Dana. Honestly? said Hayward. Like someone who knew this call was coming. Like someone who had prepared for it. There was another long pause, neither of them saying a word. Hayward was the first to break the silence, her voice low and throaty. Anyway, I just wanted to check in, let you know that Brad Heckman won't be bothering you again. No, he won't, Dana said. She could almost hear Hayward smile on the other end of the phone. We're still going to be looking for the person who did it, 
said Hayward. We're the police. That's our job. But unless we catch a break and find that gun, I don't think there's any way we can ever build a case. As long as whoever shot him did a good job of hiding the weapon, it looks like they'll probably get away with it. She paused, letting the words sink in. Anyway, it's like you said, Brad didn't have too many friends. There aren't a lot of witnesses clamoring to come forward to try and help us catch the shooter. I guess that's kind of what happens to assholes who beat up their wives, isn't it? Thank you, Detective, Dana said. Thank you for... for calling. Across the lobby, her friends had gotten their popcorn and were waving at her to come back and join them. My pleasure, said Hayward. Hopefully this will be the last time we ever talk. Have a good rest of your semester, Dana. Try to enjoy yourself. I will, said Dana. She hung up the phone and crossed the lobby to where her friends were waiting for her, all of them talking and laughing brightly, throwing pieces of popcorn at each other. Slipping back in with the group, she followed them into the darkening theater, feeling good and careless and free, freer than she'd felt in years. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Not So True Crime. Music for today's show was composed by Daniel Birch, Alan Spieljack, Chris Zabriskie, and Parvis Decree. If you want to listen to more of their music, you can find links to it in the description of this show. If you like the show and want to help other people find it, you can leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. The more we get of both, the more people can listen to this show. You can also email us at notsotruecrime at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at notsotruecrime and jvisglosky. We'll be back soon with another original story. Until then, I'm John Visglosky. Thanks for listening. <laughs>